Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I do invite you to take your Bibles uh, with me this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time uh, today, we're in the middle of two issues that Paul is addressing to the Thessalonians about the return of Christ. Last week, the Thessalonians were concerned about believers who had died, wondering what's going to happen to those who have died when when Christ comes again. Are they missing out on the return of Christ? And, And Paul responded with a ringing declaration of hope. A ringing declaration that because Christ is risen, those who have put their trust in him will also rise from the dead, so that when Christ returns, all believers will be together with him forever. Today, Paul indicates that there was a second topic that the Thessalonians were wondering about or needed instruction on, and this question has to do with when Christ will return and how to prepare oneself for his return. So I'd invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, and we'll read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. God, how we thank you for your word. Would you continue by your spirit to speak to us and apply your word to our lives for the glory of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Paul begins this passage by addressing this second topic related to the return of Christ. He he begins by saying, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers. Another way to translate that into English that might sound more familiar to our ears would be now concerning dates or where we are in the plan of God, brothers. You have no need to have anything written to you. See, the Thessalonians were wondering what date Christ might return or how soon it might happen. It seems like questions of when Christ might return have been on the minds of believers since Jesus first rose 
uh, ascended to heaven uh, after his death and resurrection and promised that he would return again. And that interest hasn't really abated. There's still interest in what date Christ might return or when he might come. It was in the spring, I think uh, April or May of 2011, I was in downtown Lancaster walking down the street when a truck turned on to King Street. And on the back of the truck, it was a, it was a pickup truck of some sort, but it had a, at least an 8 foot by 12 foot sign sitting in the bed of the truck. And, and most of the 8 by 12 feet was taken up with the date, May 21st, 2011. And underneath it proclaimed, Judgment Day, the end of the world is weeks away. Many of you may remember the stir as a, a prominent uh, Christian leader, well, maybe not too prominent, a small group uh, had proclaimed fairly publicly that May 21st, 2011 was the date of Christ's return. And a number of his followers had cashed in their 401ks, had given up their jobs, had spent their savings and even sold their houses in order to take bus tours to spread the news that Jesus was coming on May 21st, 2011. Well, it's 2020. So we know how that prediction turned out. Well, there's others who maybe aren't going to give us a specific day, but they're just as interested in trying to track how close we are to Christ's return. There was a 30-year project called the Rapture Index, which sought to track 45 signs of end times and, and give them a one to five scale. And the higher the scale value, the closer we were to Christ's return. I was really interested to know how a global pandemic might impact the, uh, the rapture index. But unfortunately, 2017 was the last update when it had hit a 29-year high and uh, had crossed into the category the site marked, fasten your seatbelts. We're, we're, we're interested in dates. We want to know when Christ might return. But even if these efforts are misguided and we might chuckle uh, or be somewhat dismayed at these, I think we can all sympathize with the interest in knowing when will Christ return. That's our desire, to know when he will come. And while some of this interest is, is merely speculative, for many this interest is also a question of when will Christ return because we want to be prepared for Christ's return. And just as a family might want to know when someone's coming over for dinner so they could have the dinner ready and the house cleaned. And many want to know, when is Christ coming? Because I want to be prepared. And that seems to be the focus of the Thessalonians' questions. The Thessalonians seem to have anxiety over when Christ would return because they wanted to be prepared. They wanted to make sure they would be ready for his return. And so in his response, Paul describes the wrong way to prepare for Christ's return, the right way to prepare for Christ's return, and the reason we can have confidence as believers when Christ returns. I want to look at each of these. We'll start with verses 2 through 5. Look at verses 2 through 5 where Paul talks about the wrong way to prepare for Christ's return. And as it turns out, Paul's point is that trying to figure out the date of Christ's return wondering about times and seasons, dates are where we are in the plan of God is the wrong way to prepare for Christ's return. And on the one hand, this date approach is off base because it's impossible to know the date when Christ will return. And you see Paul's uh, statement there in verse two, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter says the same thing in second Peter three and Jesus himself used the same analogy that the day of Christ's coming was an hour no one would expect. 
and it would be like a thief in the night. In fact, Jesus added in Matthew 24 that concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor even the Son, but only the Father. So if the angels of heaven don't know the date of the day of the Lord, if if even the incarnate Son of God does not know the date, surely it is useless for us to try to figure out the date when Christ will return. In fact, I think from the scripture we can be pretty clear that if anyone does name a specific date, it's not that date. So that's the first reason why this is the wrong way to prepare. But in verses 3 through 5, Paul, I think, explains the more important reason why focusing on the date of Christ's return is the wrong way to prepare. And we could summarize these verses this way. The unexpectedness of Christ's return is only a problem if we're living in darkness instead of light. Living in darkness describes a life that's lived for this world. It describes a life that does not know that the world is headed for destruction and judgment. It describes a life that is not living in holiness out of the fear of the Lord. It does not realize that judgment day is coming. Dark living in darkness describes a life that's still focused on or in bondage to our desires and to the pattern of this world. And if we live our lives in this way, we are in darkness, for we're still captive to sin and to a lie that does not satisfy and does not recognize the reality that the king of the universe is coming again for a day of judgment. And in verse 3, Paul issues an urgent warning to those who are walking in darkness. While those living their lives based on this world might be saying, things are great, there's peace, there's security. Sudden destruction is going to come upon them. Sudden destruction like labor pains come on a pregnant woman. And this might seem like an unusual analogy in some ways. After all, most women I know are looking forward to labor coming because it means the arrival of the baby. But Paul's point here is that we never know when labor pains are going to begin. But when they come, pain is unavoidable. And that's the point of the analogy here. Paul's warning should cause each one of us to examine our hearts and our lives. Christ is coming. The day of the Lord is approaching. The day of judgment. Have we entrusted ourselves to the king? Have we put our faith in Christ? Because if we have not repented, then the return of Christ is a fearful day. Even for those of us who have been maybe coming to church or had a religious background, if we have not put our faith in Christ... The coming of the Lord is a day of judgment. The Old Testament prophet Amos warned those of God's people who knew of God yet were not following him in faith and obedience. And Amos said this, he said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall, a place of safety, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? That's what the day of the Lord will be for those who are not walking in faith and obedience to God. In my years of youth ministry, I heard another version, I think, of this interest in dates and times. When Christ would come, and I think it went something like this, it would bank that Christ's return was still plenty of years off, And so we have plenty of time before we need to get serious with the Lord. I heard statements like this. Well, in college, 
when I'm on my own and not following my parents, then I will most likely put my trust in Christ. Or I want to enjoy high school, but I promise I still know Jesus and I plan to attend church and be more serious about it later. See, this is banking on knowing something about dates and times. We have time before the Lord comes. But as the 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle once put it, he said, I bury youthful corpses as well as aged ones. I read the names of persons no older than every one of you in every graveyard. So leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk where your soul is at stake. Paul's point is that the unexpectedness of Christ's return is a problem if we are walking in darkness or are spiritually asleep. But if we have put our faith in Christ as the King and Savior of all who trust in him, if we pursue Christ as we wait his promised return, we're not walking in darkness. We're living in the light. And Paul's point is, if we are in the light, we do not need to fear the return of Christ. These terms of darkness and light are used all throughout the New Testament to refer to those who either do know Christ or don't. You might remember Peter's statement that God has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You might remember where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we have put our faith in Christ, we are in the light. And if we are children of the light or children of the day, Christ's return will not surprise us like a thief. We will be expecting it and looking for it. We might not know when it's going to happen, but it won't be a surprise to us. I think Paul's point in these verses is perfectly summarized by the experience of any child. I think every single one of us as a child has had the experience, haven't we, of being up to some sort of devious wrongdoing and having your mom walk into the room and catch you red-handed And we're thinking, how did mom know to walk in right now? I thought for sure she was out watering the flowers. I didn't know she was monitoring this app. How did she know? know, She must have x-ray vision. She must have some techie helping her out. The feeling of that child when caught red-handed doing what is wrong, that is what Christ's return will be like for those who do not know Christ. Unexpected exposing our hearts and our lives, and just punishment is unavoidable. But what does every parent tell their child in these cases? If you were being obedient, it wouldn't matter when I walked into the room, right? Isn't, isn't that the response? The best way to avoid this situation is to do what is right. If you are doing what is right, you have no fear of your parents walking in on you. And I think that's Paul's point here. We don't need to know dates and times because if we're children of the light, Christ's return will not bring punishment. It will bring the fulfillment of our greatest desire. For those who know Christ, his arrival is more like maybe the arrival of grandparents that we're awaiting and we know they're going to come sometime today, but we don't know exactly when, but we're on tiptoe at the window. We're watching for it. And when they come, it's the fulfillment of what we are longing for and it brings joy. So trying to figure out dates and times is the wrong way to prepare, both because we can't know the date and because it's unnecessary for those who have put their faith in Christ. Well, what's the right way to prepare then? Well, look to verses 6 through 8. In verses 6 through 8, Paul describes how those who know Christ ought to prepare for the return of Jesus. Since we are children of the day, Paul says, let us keep awake and be sober. Or as another translation puts these words, let us be alert and self-controlled. Alert, awake, 
sober, self-controlled. This is what we should be like. Or as Paul says by way of contrast there in verses 6 and 7, we should not be sleepy and drunk because those are the attitudes of those who are in darkness or at night. I think we know what these terms mean. These aren't unusual terms to us. To be sleepy or to be drunk describes a life of someone who's at ease, who's unprepared for action, who's unprepared for anything important to happen. Spending our time satisfying our desires rather than doing anything urgent or productive. Seminary professor Greg Beale comments this way. He says, to be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way God views reality. To be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numbed to any feeling of fear in the present of a coming judgment. On the other hand, though, alertness. Alertness is an attitude of constant spiritual focus. Alertness is the attitude that is ready and watching How would this apply to our life? What does it look like to be alert? It means we are ready and watching for temptation. It means we know that each day is going to be a battle with our sinful flesh and we are ready for that. To be alert is to be eager and intentional about doing good and fulfilling the calling God has given us each day. To be alert is to be actively praying, praying for God's grace and guidance, praying for sanctification, praying for the success of the gospel and the good of the church, praying that we would be ready for the coming of Christ. To be alert is to be on the lookout for his return and to seek to live as becomes his people while we wait. That's alertness. How about soberness or self-control? That's the attitude that considers or weighs our actions and our decisions, that holds each decision and action in our lives up to the standard of Scripture. It doesn't just go along with the flow. It doesn't act without inhibition. It weighs things according to God's Word. This is the description Paul gives us, and it matches perfectly what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 when he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action be alert, right? And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be alert, be self-controlled. Jesus is coming. Set your minds on that. Some of us, I think, need this encouragement not to get sucked into a sleepy routine. Some of us need this encouragement not to be spiritually asleep but to stay alert for the sake of our souls. And if I could speak to those who are young, our teens, our young adults, this is a particular challenge for you because the pressure to be credible in our culture makes you particularly vulnerable to swim in sleepiness, to swim in the pleasures of today. But it is also an opportunity for you because this means you have a unique opportunity to affirm each day of your life that Christ is coming and that where you stand with him is more important than where you stand with any other group or person around you. Maybe there's others of us who need this encouragement for another reason. For others of us, we are trying, even if imperfectly, to stay alert, but we feel our imperfections. We feel the burden of this life and the encouragement we need is this passage's reminder that Christ is coming. The effort is not in vain The watchfulness of life that seeks to obey Christ is worth it. The glory of the ages is approaching. Our Savior is coming. 
and our effort, while maybe at times it feels like the effort of a weary traveler just trying to make it to the end of the journey, our effort is just as truly the effort of a bride who prepares herself and awaits her wedding morning that she would be ready in beauty and in purity so that we, this also is an effort for us, which will be rewarded with glorious peace and glorious joy on that morning when like a bride we are united to our Savior forever. So Paul says, be alert and be sober. And then he adds in verse 8 one more encouragement for how to prepare for Christ's return. He adds in verse 8 that we should put on our armor. Many of you are familiar with Ephesians 6 and the passage about the armor of God. This is an abbreviated version where we're told to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Those of you who have been following with us through 1 Thessalonians know by this point that faith, love, and hope are pretty much a three-word summary of this whole book. We've heard about them over and over. In every chapter, faith, love, and hope have come out. But this is not Paul just being repetitive. Maybe in your English paper, you'd be told to find some synonyms here. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is emphasizing how defining these three Christian virtues are for our faith. Faith, our trust in God's promises as a whole, and entrusting ourselves to Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf in particular. Love, our affection for God and for his people, and our desire and willingness to act in self-sacrificial, intentional ways for one another. Hope, our fixed confidence that no matter what happens to us now, Christ is coming again, and he will save his people. He will undo sin. He will undo suffering. The curse will be done away and he will bring us to be with the Lord forever. Faith, love, and hope. Nothing prepares us for Christ's return quite like arming ourselves with faith, love, and hope. You know, if you ever watch a war movie, whenever a new scene starts, you can tell right away if you're looking at the soldiers on the front lines or if you're looking at them back in camp in an area that at least is supposedly safe because the attitude of each soldier is completely different. If they're on the front lines, they are alert, they are watchful, and they are armed. And that's Paul's point. How do we prepare for the coming of Christ? Well, we're on the lines. And so right away, the right way to prepare for the coming of the Lord is to be alert, to be sober, and to be armed with faith, love, and hope. If that describes our lives spiritually, it doesn't matter when Christ returns. It could be tomorrow or a thousand years. We will be ready to meet our Savior. Well, look at the end then, verses 9 and 10. Perhaps some might read Paul's comments and think, yikes, if we're to prepare for Christ's return by being alert and and sober and, and armed with faith, hope, and love, I don't know how I'm doing. I'm still battling the sins of my heart. I'm not doing this perfectly. Am I doing it well enough? What if I look at my life and find reason for fear rather than hope? And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul reorients our gaze to our reason for hope at Christ's return. Because having seen the Thessalonians' faith, love, and hope, Paul can remind them here in verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, 
That is, whether we are alive or have died when he comes, we might live with him. See, brothers and sisters, our hope depends on God's sovereign decision and determination that we would be saved and would not suffer wrath. This was a sovereign act of God from the beginning of the world when, in which he predestined or chose us in him to be adopted as his sons. And it continues to be a sovereign act of God who preserves his people day by day. Think of 1 Peter 1, 5, where he says, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Our hope depends on God's sovereign power, his decision that has determined from the beginning of the world and continues to determine each day that his people are his and will obtain salvation. If you've ever opened a savings account, remember maybe as a child you deposit your money and you wonder, am I ever going to get that money back? But if you're older, you don't really have that fear. You're pretty much expecting to get your money back. And part of the reason is because if you go to a bank and deposit your money, there's a seal there that says at least up to $250,000. This is FDIC insured. And that seal says, at least gives us hope that we will get our money back even if the bank fails. That seal of insurance gives us sufficient comfort to make our deposit. But that's just a government seal. That's just a government promise. That is nothing compared to the assurance that we have, the absolute confidence we can have in the promise of salvation if the power of God itself has destined us and determined that we will receive salvation for any who deposits his heart and life in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.30, a verse many of you know, says those he predestined he has also called. And those he has called, he has also justified. And those he has justified, he has also glorified. There may be things that threaten us from without. Pandemics, violence, injustice, government decisions, family tension, hurt, loss. There may be things that threaten us from the inside. Anxieties, fears, depression, stubbornly recurrent sins. But for those whose faith is in Christ We are held by the hand of God himself. And our hope rests on the sovereign decision and determination of God. He will preserve us. He will bring us to obtain salvation when he returns. And then Paul even adds a second assurance. He adds in verse 10, Our hope is grounded on Christ's death for us, that we might live with him. And that's the core of the good news, isn't it? That our assurance is not based on looking at our lives and seeing little sin. It's based on looking at our lives and despite knowing our sin, seeing the blood of Christ that was shed for us, covering us and assuring us of salvation. There can't be any greater foundation for hope than this, could it? The blood of Jesus poured out for us, the sovereign decision of God preserving us by his power, which guarantees that when Christ returns, we will obtain salvation. Well, we close, Paul closes with the same encouragement, verse 11, that we got last week. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In other words, these words of strength and hope are not just for us to read and internalize, though these words certainly strengthen our souls. 
These words are also words for us as the community of God's people, that we might speak them to one another, that we might encourage one another with these words. Do you see a brother or sister getting sleepy in their faith? Or do we see ourselves getting sleepy in our faith? Encourage one another with these words. Do we see a brother or sister not repenting for sin in their life? Do we see a brother or sister discouraged by remaining sin in their life, even though they are repenting and seeking Christ? Do we see a brother or sister weary in their waiting for the Lord, burdened by suffering, burdened by this life? Let us encourage one another with these words. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. And our hope is fixed on him. Because the main point of Paul this morning is that the way to prepare for Christ's return is not to figure out the date, is not to know when it is coming. No, it is by living alert and ready as followers of Christ. It is by arming ourselves with faith, love, and hope and knowing the assurance of the gospel so that when he comes, we will live with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious assurance and hope. We thank you for the blood of Christ shed for us. We thank you for the sovereign decision and determination of Christ. That our God has destined us for salvation. May we have confidence in him this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.